we are going to be in uh, in a hurry to cruise through some of these passages, probably faster than we would, would want to, but um, we are very grateful for y'all to come and, and uh, feast on Romans 13 uh, with us today. Let me read 1 to 7 and um, pray, and then we're going to turn it over to Josh to, to introduce some things for us here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And next week, Lord willing, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has um, obeyed the... uh, My page is folded. Fulfilled the law. And um, let me pray for us. And, and uh, next week, uh, it's going to be such a feast on that, on the part about love and um, the, the idea of just the end being near and, and that we need to be um, uh, aggressive in the way we're serving our Lord Jesus. But, but we'll get there, Lord willing, next week. We have a lot to, to work on um, today, and we'll start with Josh. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful. Um, you have been so good to us. We think even about our governing authorities. And Lord, certainly in our world today, we um, could be growing up in North Korea or living there. We could be living somewhere where, um, where the, uh, the tension is far higher. Um, certainly, Lord, we realize that uh, our governing authorities are um, sinful, um, have um, sin uh, as as we had um, and still have um, that resides in us but we are grateful Lord for the freedoms that you've given us in this country uh, Lord we pray that you would give us grace to think through this um, extraordinary passage to understand exactly what Paul's teaching and then just as importantly that we'd be able to apply these things to our life Um, for your glory. We are so grateful for your word. Thanks that faith comes from hearing your word and hearing from, uh, faith comes from hearing the word and and your word um, uh, that you've given us so faithfully and that you sanctify us by your truth. This is truth. Lord, thank you that your word never returns void, but that we can trust that today it'll accomplish your purposes and we pray uh, that we would be faithful um, in the way that we discuss it, and more yet, even the way we apply it uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Josh, help us to, uh, to understand what's a, a, another, not shockingly, I guess, in the book of Romans, another, another difficult passage kind of to, to get a grasp on. 
Yeah, difficult passage can be wrongly applied. I think it's been wrongly applied throughout the history of the church at certain moments, but we want to really zero in here on what it is saying. And uh, you'll, you'll recall last week we sort of had the staccato style, uh, short abbreviated um, commands that Paul gives. And then today's passage, for the next seven verses at least, there's kind of one unifying point, And that is for the believer to be subject to the governing authorities. And uh, Paul's looking in these kind of last couple chapters of Romans at different relationships. And in Romans 12, um, Paul looks at the believer's relationship to God, to ourselves, to one another, and then to the evildoer. And then here, it's how we relate to the governing authorities. And so... Uh, Paul isn't giving it maybe a comprehensive picture here of how the believer interacts with the, the state, but kind of a, a one-sided view here. Um, but he was not naive about certain things. Certainly, he, he um, in the back of his mind, had stories of Daniel, who, who didn't obey the governing authorities when um, Nebuchadnezzar asked him to, to not pray. And uh, Shipra and Pua, who didn't um, sacrifice the babies and didn't um, commit abortions. They, they defied government authority. Um, but here, um, we just want to look at what is Paul asking the believer's attitude and action to be towards the, towards the government and um, focus in on that. So, Jerry, you want to go ahead and just dive right into the first few verses? Yeah, I think so. Grant, would you want to go before that, or should we dive in a little bit? Sure, I, I can go. I think what I have sort of falls in right in the first few verses anyway, so we can just go off of that. Um, I think we, we used to joke that pretty much every week the commentators would say whatever passage we were studying was the hardest passage in Romans to understand. And But this time is definitely my turn. I think this passage has been, uh, it's been extremely difficult for me. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest sections in Romans for me to wrap my mind around uh, because I think the application of this text is, is very difficult to get right. Um, and the topic of authority in general is a sticky one because we're sinful people and so we hate being told what to do and um, we hate authority and also because we're sinful there's bad authority that exists in the world. So it's hard to get this right. I think we saw that. Uh, we all saw that in 2020. Um, with all the things that went on, you know, there was a spirit of rebellion that definitely was percolating and even probably more largely a spirit of cowardice and silence. But um, Romans 13 speaks to these things, and I think it's important to try to get it right and see what the entirety of the Bible has to say about that. But I also realize that 13 is, is pretty weighty because the consequences for being wrong are, are quite large. Um, and they're severe in both ways, I think, because we see... Um, that those who resist authority from what we've already read um, and resist wrongly oppose the ordinance of God and will receive condemnation upon themselves. And then we also know from the examples that Josh already gave us to not resist in other areas, and certain ex exceptions exist, um, would mean to compromise our faith and to dishonor God. So it's, it's, it's extremely difficult, I think, to get this correct. And then to add on top of that, we live today in a in a very different situation than many others in history have. We have a very complex authority structure in America, a relatively free country. God has established the Constitution, the branches of government with their balance of powers, and state authorities with their jurisdictions. 
And so it can be a little bit difficult to figure out how to apply this rightly and faithfully honor God in, in this. Um, but also, I think it's, um, as Jerry said, we, we have a lot of privilege when it comes to our situation because there are other people um, that don't live in a situation like us, but they live under severely evil totalitarian authority. And this text would be something that is not something to deal with flippantly, but to get right and very serious. And so I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say on it. But I just wanted to dive in after that, uh, just to speak about authority in general, because that's what we see in the beginning, that every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we see that authority is not something that was created by humans. It has been there from the beginning, instituted by God. Authority is actually inescapable. It can be used rightly or wrongly, but there is always authority. It can be submitted to rightly or wrongly, or there can be submission to the right and wrong authority, but you can't get away from authority in this world. God built authority into this world as He is the ultimate authority. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's also, I think, important to remember that authority was not introduced at the fall. It was from the beginning, by necessity, from God Himself. His very nature dictates authority because He is supreme. Um, and I also think there will be authority structures in the new heavens and the new earth. Obviously, God will still be supreme, but it seems like uh, with the language of ruling over ten cities um, from those passages that there probably will still be authority structures in the new heavens and the new earth. So we can't escape it. Uh, law came because of sin, and laws expand and multiply because of sin. Um, but the problem of authority is sin. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit before we get going on freedom as well, because lack of freedom is not to be confused with having authority over you. I think those can be confused sometimes. Um, you may say, wait, how can you have authority over, over me and still be free at the same time? Aren't those contradictions? Shouldn't we be able to do whatever we want? And typically, when those types of things are said, it is assumed that that means uh, the ability to do whatever we want is usually couched in the phrases of, I want to sin in certain ways. Shouldn't I be able to do that if I'm truly free? Um, but the, question, the answer to that is, is that really freedom? Are you really free to not live that way? The freedom that is often talked about is usually just license and is really a form of slavery to passions. True freedom is for the redeemed. Christ has set us free, free for freedom. Freedom is for those made new with no sin, and in the truest sense, freedom is the ability to pursue the highest good and virtue without restraint. This is not contrasted with authority, but given but is given life by true authority. But where there is sin, freedom typically becomes a license for evil. So I just wanted to bring that up just because those are subjects that are really um, important for me, and I, I've been trying to think through them in the past three years just because of of what has happened in the past, and I think it's so important to get that right. But also, um, I think one of the more common uh, responses to true authority is, is hate, because we're sinful people. We hate being told what to do. Um, if you've had children, you probably realize, naturally, we don't want to be obedient. That's not um, in our nature. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells this story that I thought was was really good on the nature of obedience and authority. He said he was having one of just the best days ever, just sitting, uh, I don't know where he was, but just having a fantastic day as a kid. Um, and then he decided he was having such a good day, he's like, well, 
I'll surprise my mom by going and, and cleaning the basement. Um, and as he was getting ready to do that, he was in such a good mood, cheerfully like, oh, this will be great. I'll, I'll clean it. I'll surprise her. She'll be so pleased. I'll get praised. And as he was on his way, she asked him to go clean the basement. And he was like, wow, my mom just spoiled everything. She, she spoiled the plants. Now I don't want to do the very thing that I was freely volunteering to go do. So I thought that was a wonderful example of, of that because he was wanting to do it. And then as soon as he was told to do it, didn't want to do it. So I know that that is in, is if for sure in me, I'm, I'm sure it's in everyone, this idea of not wanting to do what we're told to do. So the question can then be, how do we know when to not do what we're told to do and when to do what we're told to do? Because obviously this passage is saying we should submit to right authority. Um, one example of that, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to y'all for your, your thoughts, but um, it's again from C.S. Lewis. I, I I don't know if this will be helpful. It was very helpful for me to, to decide. In clear cases, how do we know when not to and when to obey? And the idea, I don't know if any of you have ever read these books, the Chronicles of Narnia. Most of you probably have, but if you haven't, uh, they're worth worthwhile. And this is in Prince Caspian. There's a character called Trumpkin the Dwarf. And in this, the, the Narnians are under siege, and they're having a rough go of it, and they're about to lose, basically. And so they're debating uh, where to get help from. And in that, they decide to blow the horn of Susan, which in these books would bring about uh, deliverance from Aslan or from one of the past kings or some sort of magical deliverance. And I'm just going to try to read. It's tough to put these together, so if it doesn't make sense, I apologize. But this is a good example of uh, submitting to authority and when not to submit to authority by Trumpkin. Um, So Trumpkin doesn't believe in what the horn stands for, and he says, Your Majesty knows, I think the horn and the bit of broken stone over there and your great King Peter and your lion Aslan are all eggs and moonshine. It's all one to me when Your Majesty blows the horns. All I insist on is that the army is told nothing about it. There's no good raising hopes of magical help, um, which I am sure are to be a disappointment. And then Caspian replies, Then in the name of Aslan we will blow the horn. Uh, And then later... When they're deciding where they should go to see where the help would appear after they blow the horn, they thought, you know, there's three different old locations in Narnia. The help is sure to come to one of those. So they're deciding who should go where and wait for the help to arrive. And and Trumpkin says, just as I thought, uh, the first result of all this foolery is to bring, not to bring us help, but to lose us a couple more fighters, the people that would have to go out and find the help. And then later, a different dwarf uh, said, I won't go when they're trying to decide who will go. I won't go because he wants to stay there and deal to the things uh, that they're discussing in the council. And then Trumpkin responds this way pretty curiously. He says, thimbles and thunderstorms, tried Trumpkin in a rage. Is that how you speak to the king? Send me, sire, I'll go. And Caspian says, but I thought you didn't believe in the horn, Trumpkin. He said, no more do I, your majesty, but... What's that got to do with it? I might as well die on a wild goose chase as die here. You are my king. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice, and now it's time for the orders. So Trumpkin was very clear. He gave his advice. He was against it, didn't believe in it. But when the decision was made by the authority over him, he submitted to it, said, I'll do it myself. Um, But then we see he's not just a blind, uh, uh, un-ignorant somebody who just does everything he's told. In a different case, they're, I won't read it because it takes too long, but they're um, earlier trying to decide whether to blow the horn to get help that way, or in another sense, uh, Nickerbrick, the bad dwarf, 
wants to get help from some evil companions, um, basically like werewolves and all that kind of stuff. And uh, another character said, we wouldn't have Aslan on our side if we went down that route. And Trumpkin said um, to Caspian, to his king, forget Aslan, you wouldn't have me. So we see that there's this differentiation that Trumpkin has that he will follow Caspian in some situations, even if he thinks it's foolishness, but in other situations, he wouldn't have followed Caspian across a line that he thought was evil. I thought that was a clear and helpful um, way to think about when we should and shouldn't obey uh, proper authority. Yeah, Grant, I, I like what you're saying there about the really the freedom that we get when we're following Christ and we have his authority. That's truly freedom. That's not being bondage. Uh, John 8, uh, we saw this in Romans not too long ago. We'll look at that for a second, but don't need to turn there. Let me just read. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know that the truth uh, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Man, I love that. The truth sets us free. That's what we're trying to discern here, our best way to freely um, serve the government. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Turn back a few pages to, if you're in um, Romans 13 to the end of chapter 6, you might remember this. For when you are, uh, verse 20, for when you are slaves to sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. So, boy, we used to be slaves to sin, and now we're slaves to righteousness. The, our, our boss changed, our authority changed from sort of sin bossness around, now to a, a, a master, a um, the Lord Jesus who is perfect in every way, um, and, and we, as we know, is for us, not against us. But the fruit you were getting at that time, what, but what um, fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of all of these things is death. But now, I love those two words, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you, that you get leads to sanctification and it's an eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I really want us to see, when we're looking at this, um, like Grant said, no one likes to submit. That's That causes us, oh man, I remember, boy, Dr. Cross, this was before your regime. Um <laughs> Man, we're probably talking 2006 or seven. We had an honorary group of seniors. And they, when we came in one day, they had painted in a white sign with big red letters and hung it up. One word, submit. And that didn't, shockingly, did not go well with the rest of everybody from 6th to 11th grade. Like their, their idea was... Everybody else here needs to submit to the seniors. And it was like, oh boy, that would just cause such a... Why? Because, I mean, first, they shouldn't have pulled that kind of a prank. Secondly, that's just nobody likes it. And uh, But here's what I really think Romans has taught us so well, 
is we are free. We're free to submit to the government. We are free to submit to the Lord Jesus. We are free. We've never been more free than we are once we start to be believers. Josh, help us to start kind of walking through um, this passage because we certainly get the idea, like Grant said, that this government um, is something that God has established, which changes our whole view on everything. Yep, certainly changes our whole view. I, th- I think maybe a couple terms are worth defining here so we can just carve back through it. 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I think their governing authorities refers really to anybody representing the office of the state. So for our context today, that would be, you know, sort of federal level. I think when we read this text, we probably automatically think about sort of our federal presidential level of government. But I think it also comes down to the state level and the local level as well. And then be subject to, um, to, if that's the governing authorities, Paul's saying let every person be subject to. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, and I think we will. But um, I think it's a broader term than, than obedience. I think it encompasses obedience, but also includes to, Doug Moose says, recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy that is established by God. And it's to acknowledge certain institutions and people have been placed over us and have the right to our deference. And so believers are to respect the office of those in authority. And then 1B, 13.1, for, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So that, I think, gives us uh, the reason why we are to respect those in authority, because uh, there's nobody in office that doesn't have that position except by God's own authority. Um, and it's what Jesus said to Pilate uh, when he was having that conversation. He reminds Pilate that you would have no authority if it were not given to you from above. And I think it's helpful to remember if we're ever in authority, that's been given by God and him alone. And then uh, when we think about our own authorities, especially those in government positions, and then, as Grant reminded us, verse 2, uh, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so there is this weighty uh, verse there about when we think about resistance to the government that um, something that must be thought through, and I thought you did a good job helping us think about that, Grant, but not something that we take lightly, not something uh, civil, civil disobedience is not something that Christians would, would take lightly. Um, I thought another commentator laid this out very helpfully about the duties of the, the government, uh, one being to bear the sword to protect the land so that people can dwell in peace and then punish the wrongdoer. Uh, it, the government is good because they punish those who do wrong. They restrain human evil and uh, human depravity is not unleashed on a people because the government, when it's acting properly and fulfilling its duty, does restrain evil. And um, I think maybe there are just a couple implications here from these first few verses, not in any particular order, but I think Christians' attitudes should not be one of outlaws or anarchists or uh, revolutionary subversive types when it comes to the government. Uh, we, we would certainly say bad government's better than no government. 
And our natural bent, I think, should be wanting to obey the government and know that it has been installed and instituted by God. And uh, believers will seek to honor and obey the government as much as possible. I think also, uh, verse 1, there's no authority except from God. We can be confident that there's no secular ruler that's going to thwart God's will or thwart his plan or go apart from what he, uh, his will is. And um, Isaiah 40, 23 and 24 lay that out clearly, but God uh, is over the princes and the rulers of the world, and they serve the purpose that he has given to them. Um, and they serve a rightful place or sphere ordering the, the world according to his purpose. And I think another important implication for us as Christians is that we do all that we can to obey the government um, while also recognizing that God is the higher authority and we obey him over man while also being obedient to the government as much as possible. Um, and then I think we're, we're very thankful for the government, as you were saying, and um, which restrains human depravity and evil and violence. You think about if there were no fear of punishment, how much evil would propagate in the in the land that we live, and that's one reason we can be thankful for our government. <clears throat> yeah, and a lot of us haven't lived somewhere else, but uh, I would think most of us, if we did much of a study, we would say we really have it pretty pretty well off. Um, have certainly not not perfect. I think Stott said, Josh, what you were kind of saying. We are to submit to our governing authorities right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. I like that. Right up to the point where we would disobey God, that's how much we're to submit. Only when the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands is our duty to disobey the state in obedience to God. So it's only when we would be um, sinning. And certainly, I love what you're pointing out. I want to hear from Carter uh, taking us back to Jeremiah here um, for a second. But I want to hear, I want us to think about and you pointed it out that in chapter 12, individually, we are not supposed to um, take revenge or we're not supposed to go back to 19. I guess it'd be better to read it. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For if by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our command individually. That's how we're to be. But the government is to um, show the wrath of God, right? He switches gears in 13 to say, okay, individually, chapter 12, the governing authorities, though, they have um, you know, a, a different role, certainly, than we do as individuals. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority and so no one should fear that we're going to retaliate individually but they should fear that the government and it is right for the government to take action basically what you told us the government is to commend those who are doing right and to punish those who are doing wrong that's in the simplest i think terms that's what's supposed to happen carter i uh, hope us sir you've got some interesting thoughts Right. Um, <clears throat> in the book of Jeremiah, just reading it recently, 
uh, I thought it was a lot of what I saw in Jeremiah and the things that were going on in Israel at the time had a lot um, that was sort of parallel to what Paul talks about or what the Lord commands us as Christians to do in Romans 13. And just uh, just reiterating what, uh, Mr. Jerry, what um, you and Josh said, that government has its functions that the Lord designed, that government should um, should uphold justice, promote um, should promote righteousness, and in its within its design context, it should condemn injustice. It should condemn wickedness, and I think that within an ideal circumstance, or even with even in an unideal circumstance, even when in a circumstance where the, the government is imposing evil on its citizens, I think there's a beautiful thing when you see Christian submission play out, even amidst those circumstances. And I think that an example that will really breathe life into Romans 13, we can find in Jeremiah 25, if you want to turn there. But <clears throat> just to give us some context of where we are, this is the point in Israel's history where her iniquity has come to a broiling point. Uh, we all know at the beginning, um, the Lord rescued Israel from Egypt and He gave them the law and they were meant and they were to be His chosen people, to be a beacon to the nations, to display the glory of God in their the way that they lived and the principles and the statutes that He had given them, to profess the glory of God not only by the way society is structured and the beauty found there, but also by the way He worked out salvation for them in Egypt how that all testifies to who the Lord is and how that testifies um, testifies to His glory throughout all the nations. And the Lord, specifically by way of Moses, gave them uh, a covenant. And that was, if you keep my word, if you keep my precepts, you will be blessed. The land will be filled with good things. Your, your relationships will prosper. All these things would surround you. He promised them life if they kept His word, if they kept His law. But then on the other hand, he promised them if they grew stubborn, if their heart grew recalcitrant, if their hardness of heart grew and their coldness and their refusing of him grew, then he would ultimately punish them if their evil grew to an extent, to a certain point to where it got too much. He would discipline them, he would chastise them, and he would eventually cause them to return back to him. And so we see throughout the course of Israel's history, they constantly... You would see just certain points they would decline and then they would have this short period of when they would repent and return to Him. Then it would just be followed by a sharp decline again. And here in Israel's history, we, the broiling point has reached and surpassed the threshold. I mean, the iniquity of Israel has surpassed any level that has ever been before. And the Lord is finally, has finally dropped both hands. The hand which is entreating Israel to come in repentance and the hand which is holding back His wrath, He's dropped them both. He's about to drop them both at this point. And He's about to unleash His wrath upon Israel in punishment in order to end their evil, in order to end their iniquity. And He sends Jeremiah, even we see the mercy of God in sending His, his prophets through this whole time pleading for Israel to repent. And so now he sends Jeremiah as his prophet to proclaim a word, not of mercy anymore, but of justice. Lord, The Lord's wrath is coming. That was Jeremiah's, that was the summary of his message. 
And I just want us to pay attention here to how what the Lord instructs Jeremiah to say and how the Lord structures the rest of history and how He unleashes His wrath on Israel and how He describes it. So I'm going to start in chapter 25 and verse 8 of Jeremiah. <clears throat> this is the Lord talking in verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, talking to Israel, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to a destruction, to destruction, and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. If we fast forward to chapter 27, Verse 4, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I, who by my great power and my outstretched arm, have made the earth, with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these, all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Now, I just want to point out a few observations that I had that sort of go along the points mentioned in Romans 13. So, and the first observation I had in Romans 13 was that translates to Jeremiah is that God institutes an authority. He institutes the Chaldeans, the king of Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, but he, he specifically institutes an authority, which is Babylon as a nation. And what does he say in chapter 27? Ultimately, the Lord says that with his outstretched arm and his great power, he's made the earth. He ha- he is the ultimate the ultimate level of authority. He has ultimate level of power, and he will give it to whomever he pleases. And here in this specific example, the Lord extends and gives authority to Nebuchadnezzar. And why? I think we could see the why and how he refers to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord says, "I will send for all the tribes of the north." and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. That's an odd way of describing Nebuchadnezzar who would destroy his people, ultimately come to destroy his people. He also says it a second time in uh, chapter 27. Now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. The first exile, I believe, maybe not, but Cyrus. Cyrus, the Lord referred to Cyrus as my shepherd. That's a very odd way to talk about someone who's going to destroy the people you've chosen. But I think that my servant, my shepherd, these things all all point to Nebuchadnezzar being a vessel, being a vessel and an instrument through which God will execute justice. So God is using Nebuchadnezzar as the authority here to execute justice, to execute vengeance upon Israel. Now, this isn't just Israel standing by as a helpless victim. God is ultimately bringing to an end their evil. They are murdering their children and offering them as burnt... They're burning their children alive on altars of Baal. And so the Lord ultimately instituted an authority, Nebuchadnezzar, 
as a vessel to execute his wrath to stop the evil of Israel and to ultimately bring them to an end and to break their pride. I had an, there's another observation besides this. God also mentions later in 27, chapter 27, that any resistance against Nebuchadnezzar, any resistance against the Chaldeans, any resistance against Babylon as a nation, anyone who would not put their neck under the yoke of Babylon would be in a direct contradiction of God's word and therefore transgressing against God himself because they are transgressing against the authority that God put in place. In verse 8 of chapter 27, the Lord says, But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with a sword, with famine and with pestilence, there declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring it, its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon to serve him, I will leave on its land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. So the Lord, so even in this time, people are intentionally manipulating and nullifying the word of God. False teachers, false prophets are arising and saying, look, no one's going to pluck us out of this land. The Lord gave us this land, gave this land to our fathers. He's not going to, surely he's not going to kick us out. But the Lord effectively responds by saying, he's, he basically says, yes, I gave this land to your fathers, but in your pride and in your evil, I'm taking it from you and punishing you and in disciplining you. And he's calling all those false teachers liars because what was the lie that he was spreading? What was the poisonous what was the poisonous message that he was injecting into Israel? What were all those teachers injecting into Israel? It was the message, do not submit. Do not submit to the authority that God has set above you. Do not submit to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I think that I think that that just like what Grant said earlier, has a lot to do with us. Like there's this there's this problem within us, this constant striving for power, not wanting to submit, masked by some facade of patriotism that does no good and it's in, and it's not right because it's in co- direct contradiction of what God has said. So one last observation just for time's sake um, <clears throat> is that if we look at Romans 13, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority and do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. So God's, God's prescription to his people, to his remnant of Israel that he preserved out of the destruction of Israel was not take up arms against Nebuchadnezzar. His prescription was not make war and rebel and do all these things. Strive against Nebuchadnezzar with all your heart. This is what the Lord, this is the word that the Lord gave to his remnant, to the people who actually, who, des- who started to turn, who, whose hearts were softening to chase after him and to long for him. This is the, this is the word that he gave to them. 
Don't rebel against Babylon. In verse 4 of chapter 29, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So his prescription and his word to Israel, his remnant, was not rebel, not to take up arms, build homes, settle there, and seek the welfare of Babylon. Pray on behalf of the authorities set before, like set above you in Babylon. I mean, I couldn't think of a better way to link chapter 12 and chapter 13 together when he says in 7, Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Find your welfare. To see your... As we know, Babylon would grow in increasing evil. To pray on behalf of city, of a city whose authorities and government officials are fallen and perhaps may chase after evil things. Is, that, is there not a greater definition of love for your enemies, of love for those who may hate you? I mean, I don't see, I couldn't see a better example of how chapter 12, talking about love, talking about selfless, self-sacrificial love, for, for loving others and looking for the good and the benefit of someone else at the cost of ourselves. I could not see a better application of that especially when we see it in um, praying for those who are set above us, praying for our, for our officials, our government leaders, all, the, all those people who are set in authority above us. But I also wanted to, to mention one more thing, that <clears throat> he, the, the word that the Lord gives to his people is the same that he gives that he gave to the church at Rome. He told that his remnant here, wait on me. He said, 70 years, I'll fulfill the promises that I've made. And he knew the plans that he had for them, plans for welfare and not for evil. That is almost, that is very similar, if not the same as 828. The promise of God in 828, for I've walked, for I walk, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The Lord knows the plans that He has for us, not plans for evil, but for good. These, I mean, the Lord, just in 
Romans um, in Rome at that time. Nero was emperor. He burned down Jerusalem and he caused and he he placed the blame all on the Christians and he burned Christians alive in in the gar in his own garden, his personal garden. And he did this as like a symbol. And the Roman believers still te- were still told to submit to the the um, the Roman government out of protection because of the Lord set them in authority over them, and they were instructed to wait upon the Lord that He will fulfill His promises. He'll fulfill His promises to us. He'll fulfill His promises to um, to I mean I mean the promises that He made here that He will have Israel return is good but how much more how much greater are our promises that we have now even as things may ramp up not quite it may not seem quite as bad as emperor nero burning our brothers and sisters alive in his garden but as evil consumes us all around all the time we can we can trust to wait on the lord and his word is good we can trust him when he says to submit to governing authorities and even when things (laughs) things may not completely make sense or seem like they're when we see, when we begin to doubt his word we can know that his word is to be trusted rather than our own feelings and our own interpretations of his word yeah and only when nebuchadnezzar went too far you remember shadrach meshach and abednego said to the king oh nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter remember he wants him to bow down to his to his statue if this be so our god whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and we shall do, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so, it's only when Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to do something good. I like that connection there, Carter. To to finish this off, we couldn't go without the imperative to pay taxes. Everybody's favorite um, this time of year. There's three imperatives. Verse 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Uh, Verse 5, therefore, um, we must be in subjection. And verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Thought you were going to get out of here without talking about tax fraud, right? Boy, there is how many of us, when we're doing our taxes, are just tempted to say, hmm, they're probably not going to use this money very wisely anyway. Boy, I could save a few bucks if I answered this in a little bit of a different way. This is very clear, very clear that that, as a believer, we need to be honest in the way we go about that. And there's no, there should be no exceptions there. And so in order to save a few dollars, in order to save thousands of dollars, in order to save whatever it was, million. Do not cheat when it comes to your taxes. It's very, very clear for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honors owed. Um, Grant, could you close us and uh, ask us to uh, not only continue to think through these things, but to be quicker to to be submissive? Really, doesn't it boil down to just humility again? There's so much in chapter 12 about our humility. If you remember in verse 3, 
um, kind of summed it up first by grace. Uh, given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of themselves more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so, in humility, we should submit uh, again where we where we can. Grant a few closes. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, today, and thank you that we can gather as a local body and, and study your word so openly and freely. Um, Father, we I do ask that. We as Christians would be shining lights uh, in our country with how we interact with authority. And Father, I pray that we would um, study your word vigorously, come to a deep understanding by your um, provision for us, Father, to what you say about authority and that we would not have cowardice but courage to do what is right um, and that we would know what is right, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.